now. And then she stood up and was like... But Kirsten Ainsley came to OTJR last week, and the last time I'd seen her, she was pregnant. She came and she's like, she can't still be pregnant. That was two years ago. You know, you don't say anything. And then at least she said to me, and I'm pregnant again. Because you were just thinking that post baby bulge is not gone. No, I mean, really. You looks the same as she You listen girls okay, gossip <laughs> but we won't gossip about Steve Allen because he'll hear us if, since now that we know you're listening we won't tell you the juiciest stuff no, no, we'll save all that to later <laughs> made that mistake before actually when the was so but I mean, it is a very, it is a very apt time to be pregnant when you've already delivered your first baby, as your thesis. I mean, it's, it's like absolutely perfect timing. But I do remember one time going and giving a talk when I was like seven and a half months pregnant, eight months pregnant. And since then, nobody ever recognizes me who only knew me from that event because they think of me as this like. No, this is going to be a woman. May I borrow you? No, because afterwards. Am I meant to be signing that, Julia? Yes, please. Oh, okay. How are you? So somebody is going to give a little... Julia, is it you or is it Matilda? Layla is giving it. Layla's going to do it. Okay. Is it after Layla? The intro after the intro, right? Okay. Okay. Julia, do you want me to do housekeeping? Can you? If you want. I mean, all, all they have to know is where they lose are, I guess. I think or are you going to do housekeeping? Am I going to do housekeeping? As you know housekeeping better. I, I will just explain the... You'll explain the day. Yeah, it's just what happens afterwards, basically. So just saying, okay, we have a panel session now, then we'll have to do three breakout sessions, and which rooms there are, where they are, B, C, D, and F is upstairs. Um, you know that too? You know that too? No. Okay. <laughs> but what other households are there? You just have to tell people where the loos are and where to run if there's a fire, I guess. Okay. You can do that. I don't know why you and do run if there's a fire. I'm presuming you just leave the building. I'm assuming there's no actual sort of... And, and then um, Pierre is talking. And just make sure that he's always... Oh, sorry. <laughs> after you allow. <laughs> Yes, after, after uh, yeah, Carolyn, Pierre, and then, uh, and then I just put So it. I'm going to introduce to you when I finish. I think Pierre's going to speak after. Julia, Pierre's going to say something after Carolyn. Yeah, so you just quickly hand over Where to Pierre. Pierre. Pierre Hazan is there. Shaking hands with Julia. No, not no. actually not. The next, uh, the next one. Yeah, this one now. Pierre Hazan. And he'll say a couple of words, and then I'll just say quickly how it works. Loose are here on the floor, just to the, to the back of the room, basically. Right? Yeah. To your left. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Do you want me to start that? That's just why I took the extra one after that. I think Pierre's yeah, just going to say it's up to you. I think you have a message. Yeah, have a Hi, Bianca. Nice to meet you. Nice to meet you.
Okay, Okay, everybody, well, welcome to Oxford. Uh, Welcome to the Faculty of Law. Welcome to the Centre for Criminology. And most importantly for today, welcome to the Oxford Transitional Justice Research Group. Today's workshop is on innovative media for change, a debate between journalists, academics and practitioners. Um, As such, it fits very much, I think, the idea of debating with practitioners, with policymakers, with academics, fits very much into the commitment that we have here in Oxford, particularly, I think, in Oxford criminology, to what we call here knowledge exchange. Um, That doesn't just mean disseminating the findings of our research to people who might find them useful, but to actually engaging with those people right at the beginning of project ideas. And OTJR has really come to the fore with that goal. Uh, Justice InfoNet was launched last week, in fact, as a collaborative project between OTJR and Fondation Hirondel, a collaboration that started in 2013 during the previous ESRC Knowledge Exchange project on ways of knowing atrocity that uh, Nikki Palmer was heavily involved in, and she's here today. Um, OTJR delivers academic analysis on current issues in transitional justice, drawing, of course, on its broad network, which is a very impressive network. The project Innovative Media for Change and Transitional Justice functions as a launch event uh, for Justice InfoNet, but it's much more than that. The relationship between the media and transitional justice is, I think, a neglected topic within the academy, but also in practice. There's probably insufficient communication between academics, journalists, and practitioners. I'm actually married to a journalist, so I can vouch for the fact there's insufficient (laughs) communication. (laughs) At the same time, the media seems to be playing a more important role than ever during and after conflict, and it seems it's currently playing out in Burundi. And so this workshop will address some important issues, such as what role does media play more generally in transitional justice? How can media support a peace process, for example, in Colombia? What role does media play in gathering evidence for international war tribunals? And where are the challenges for that? media shapes the narratives of the past, the present and the future, particularly in divided societies. So how can media be transformed into into a reconciling tool that enables divergent narratives among victims or offenders, for example, to come to the fore, to be realised, to inform progress? What role is there for new media tools? And what about the role of media in outreach of national, hybrid and international trials? And what about advocacy? What about documentaries and the way that they shape particular narratives about the past or lobby for certain groups? So this workshop aims at raising awareness about all of these issues and more, and it brings together various stakeholders, filmmakers, academics, journalists, lawyers, etc., to discuss these very questions, these very important questions. It is interactive in its nature, and each panel will be followed by a breakout session, which will give you more of an opportunity to discuss things, so it's not just people talking at you. And the workshop will, of course, lead to the development of a handbook, Media for Change, and that's an ongoing project funded generously by the Economic and Social Research Council. I think this is a terrifically important event. I am very proud that the Centre for Criminology has been involved in this, and I'm also, I think it's worth saying at this stage, enormously proud of OTJR. It started from rather humble beginnings, albeit with the enthusiasm and energy that is packed into the large body of Phil Clark. And... (laughs) Hairy large body. (laughs) 
And from these very humble beginnings, this largely student-led organization is doing tremendously important and very good work. And I think this expression, it punches above its weight, has become a cliche because it's overused. But in this case, I think it's quite apt. OTJR seriously punches above its weight. So well done to those people, Leila and Julia in particular, who've organized this. that you all enjoy the next two days and get an awful lot out of it. And I'm now handing over to Pierre Hazan, who is lovely and I've only just met him. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much. Good afternoon. It's great to be here with, with some friends, some old friends and new friends. And for us, it's a very exciting period. Uh, for 20 years, uh, I've been a journalist. And then 10 years ago, I, joined the back, I was back in academia. And five years ago, I started to work also as a practitioner in the transitional justice field. And it appears to me extremely clear, clearly that we need to have some analysis, some, uh, some understanding of a lot of uh, transitional justice uh, mechanisms which are working. And very often, the discussion about this uh, mechanism are extremely polarized. On the one hand, you have uh, almost a candid, naive view that uh, we are going to reconcile population and so on and so on. We you know usual discourse about uh, uh, the benefits of uh, international justice and truth commission. And on the other hand, you have a very cynical view, basically saying that it's uh, politics uh, dressed in uh, some uh, moral clothes. So uh, our understanding is obviously none of these two uh, antagonist approaches. Uh, but it's rather different. And uh, with OTGR, with HHI, with, um, and with the uh, network of Fondation Hirondelle, uh, we are very interested uh, to, have, uh, to go deeper in the analysis. Uh, and really, it is very important to us uh, and to, um, to continue with you hand by hand. And uh, the last few days has been extremely surprising for us. Actually, uh, last Wednesday, we didn't know what to expect when we launched the website. And in the next less than two days, we had amazing reactions from different continents. And people were very much interested to, to collaborate with us. And people, we don't know about them. So something is happening. We understand that we are feeling a need. And so we need to brainstorm how best now to answer to these needs. But I'm glad to do it with you and uh, to continue this adventure which has just started. So thanks so much, and I'm looking forward uh, for being here today and tomorrow, and to for further collaboration. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for, um, to Carolyn and to Pierre for this amazing introduction. Uh, my name is Leila. I'm the convener of Oxford Transitional Justice Research. Paper, so. Oh no, <laughs> my God. Uh, I just want to quickly say something about the workshop proceedings. We have a very tight schedule. Uh, so we will start with the panel on Columbia, which will run for one hour. Each speaker will speak for 15 minutes. Then we have a very short 15 minutes Q&A. And then we will break you all up into breakout sessions. And we had a complicated system of assigning you all, which didn't work. So we will just make it very plain and simple. So I would say that the first two rows, including Nikki and Bryony, go to seminar room B afterwards, if you can note that down. 
um, that will be the breakout session on the role of media. Um, then if uh, the, the, the three here to the back and then the next two rows, if you could go to seminar room D for the breakout session and then everyone basically from in Vincent's row, which is one, two, three, four, row five and everyone else will go to seminar room F. So these are the three rooms where, we'll ha we will, where we will have our breakout sessions today. And it would be good if you just could always go to these rooms today. Tomorrow you will go to different rooms so that we have a, a sort of an even distribution of, um, of participants for each session. And yeah, and it would also be good if the speakers sort of distribute themselves even, evenly among these sessions. Um, so I think that there's also some housekeeping rules. There are toilets here behind the, if you just go uh, outside to the left and then to the left again, there are toilets for all of you. And, uh, and if there's a fire, please run outside, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there may be some more complicated procedures, but I guess it's a good advice. <laughs> uh, so um, with this, I will just now give to our facilitator, Lee Payne, who's going to fa facilitate the Columbia panel. And I ask our speakers for the panel to come to the front, please. Thank you very much. Okay. Thank you, Leila. of time, since our speakers only have 15 minutes each, uh, I'm not going to read a long introduction for each one, but you should be aware that in your package you have complete biographical information. So we, we changed the order a little bit from the, the panel, uh, the way it present, it's presented in here. Uh, we're going to start with Eileen Martinez, who's at the end of the table, and Eileen is a journalist, so this is appropriate for our media. <laughs> And she's also a, a communications office, officer at the Conciliation Resources in London. I have this, I have this horror because I remember <laughs> when I was giving this panel at OTJR way back, and the thing broke down, and Nikki was trying to make it work. When I came into this room, I thought, I hope I don't have to yeah, make this not. work. Okay. Do you want me to? Uh, or I can stand Do you here? want to stand here? Yeah, okay. as you wish. Thank you very much for the introduction and good afternoon, everybody. Um, I will start just uh, giving you a, a bit of context of the Colombian uh, peace negotiation. We have in the country more than 50 years of armed conflict, and uh, the peace talks between the government and the guerrilla, the FARC, started three years ago. And there has been moments um, of pessimism uh, during this peace uh, process. For example, when there was um, the end of a ceasefire, uh, a uni unilateral ceasefire from the FARC, from the guerrilla, and moments of optimism during this process when the parties announced the creation of a truth commission. So these ups and downs have uh, affected um, the society, and the society has witnessed an emotional roller coaster that has been shaped and that has been reflected in the media coverage. So today I'm exploring what is the role of the media in the peace negotiation, and I believe that as a Colombian that is living abroad, my perception of the peace process has been shaped by the media coverage. 
So um, I will basically cover uh, some key items. So I will say why I believe the role of media should be to explain what is happening in the peace agreements, what has been agreed already, what are the challenges of the implementations and next steps. Also, I will give you a very quick overview of the media landscape in Colombia so you can understand why I'm saying that uh, educating the audience should be the primary uh, objective and role. And then I, it will be followed by some recommendations and some of the challenges that I identify of media as educating the audience and then closing with some conclusions. So um, I believe that the role of media should be to help the audiences to understand the past and the present of, the, of their conflict or, or their context. So audiences are able to imagine and build a new future. And media can do this and can help to document history and to create collective memory. And it can help to understand uh, the challenges of the implementation. So there has been already in the peace process three agreements. And there is two more in the agenda. Um, what are the agreements that, that the government and the FARC has been already discussed? Um, land and drugs and political participation. Um, what are the agreements that are following and what are the challenges of them? So really explaining to the public what are the implications of these challenges and these points of the agenda. Also, to, um, if societies are informed, they can make better decisions. At some point during, uh, at the end of the agreements, the public will vote against or in favor of the agreements to approve them. That has been um, one of the parts of the, um, of the agreements of the parties of the conflict. And if they have enough information, they can make better decisions about, about them. And also, if uh, the media can explain and educate the society, it can help to open new debates about what does it mean truth, reconciliation, and justice for a society like the one in Colombia. So why I believe the uh, media in Colombia should explain and educate the, the context uh, of the armed conflict and the peace agreements? So here is a very quick overview of the, um, of the media in Colombia. We have, in terms of traditional media, there is two uh, main newspapers with the highest readerships um, in the country, and they are El Tiempo en el Espectador, and they are owned by uh, very strong um, economic groups in the country, very, uh, two families that have very strong political and economic power. Then we have two private media companies. Um, one of them is Caracol and the other is RCN. And they own um, the TV channels with the highest audience in the country. And also the radio stations that have, again, the highest audience across the country. And then there is two stats about the penetration of this media and how many people actually consume it. So are we seeing here potentially a monopoly of information with just few groups uh, or few families with a strong political and economic power are shaping the public agenda? So this is in terms of the traditional media. But there is also the new media that is opening opportunities uh, with the creation of websites, debates on social media, um, to open uh, multiple voices. But here we see with these stats, I just wanted to reflect that there is a still a limited access to internet and also the growth, particularly of Facebook in the Colombian society. We have seen uh, a growth in the participation. It's still not enough and it's less than 50% of the country that have access to internet and that is using actively social networks. So taking this into, 
uh, taking this in mind and with the assumption that media help to create public perceptions and help to create um, public opinion. Um, what does the public in Colombia think about the peace process? Are they supporting it or not? And here I take um, one, one sample of a survey that was done in March this year where people were asked, what is the best option to solve the armed conflict with the FARC? And we, saw, we see an increase on support of military defeat rather than the political negotiation in the last quarter of the year. Uh, in January, there was a really strong support for the political negotiation, but we see this changing. So does this, is this connected with how is the media coverage right now or just with the facts um, of what is happening in the peace process? So to try to answer that question about the change of the public perception and the decrease on the support on the peace process, I wanted to draw um, basically what is the media coverage like today in Colombia. Um, this is based on a study that the Universidad Javeriana in Colombia is doing. They are doing a daily um, monitoring of traditional media, press, TV, and radio with the highest audiences, and they identify four trends in this coverage of the peace process and armed conflict in Colombia. The first one is they saw an increase on the amount of pieces of information. There are more articles, more, more stories out there, and that's, that's positive. The second trend that they identify is also there is an increase on the pieces of information. They are very descriptive, some of them very short, and not enough in-depth analysis, and they do not connect with other topics that are related with the armed conflict, like distribution of land or natural resources. Also, the third trend in the traditional media uh, coverage is that the language that is used in this information is not fully accessible. What does that mean? We are talking about concepts that are quite abstract, transitional justice or international humanitarian law. What does that really mean for a citizen? And the, this kind of language is not fully explained in the articles or in the pieces of information. And final, the final trend they have identified is that there is an emotional coverage in, the, in topics related with the armed conflict and the peace agreement, rather than a neutral and impartial one that should be the aim of journalism. And I wanted to draw your attention on this emotional coverage with one particular example. So we have here, um, this is uh, from an event uh, earlier this year, where soldiers uh, were, um, they die after an attack by the FARC. And this is how three media outlets uh, cover this event. So this is not pieces of opinion, this is just how they uh, explain to the society <coughs> what happened in these events. On the first one, which is based on a TV um, media outlet, the journalists use adjectives like cruel and inhuman to qualify the attacks of the guerrilla. In the second article, uh, which is an interview with one of the mothers of one of the dead soldiers, the um, soldiers are portrayed as helpless victims. Something that these two articles or two media pieces of information have in common is that they just use one source of information. So they just use an official source of information or the Minister of Defense or the Army. On the third uh, article here, we see an attempt to give maybe a wider version of the events. Um, this article um, asks not just the official version, but also some guerrilla representatives 
and some members of the civil society to try to understand the different versions of what happened in that event. Um, this is a good attempt to understand the wider context, but then the language that was used across this article was still very technical, and it didn't allow people potentially to engage with the information that they were saying. So do we believe that potentially this emotional courage is helping people to understand the past and the present of the armed conflict, or is actually maybe promoting the polarization of the society? So this is what is happening in the traditional media. Let's think now about the new media, digital, websites, um, social media. And I wanted to draw your attention on this particular um, website that is called Verdad Abierta. And this is a website that is trying to do an in-depth analysis of very complex topics of the armed conflict, such as what is the history, who are the actors of the armed conflict, um, what does it mean um, transitional justice, what are the victims' point of view. So they are giving this explanation. However, it doesn't have the wider reach as the traditional media. Then also the parties of the armed conflict are having an, uh, doing an attempt to explain what is happening in the agreement. The government, a couple of months ago, launched an online course where they are explaining the agreements they have, uh, uh, they have arranged and they are explaining how they come about and topics that are connected. And also the FARC is doing a weekly news broadcast on YouTube when they explain their evolution on the peace process and some of the challenges. So this, it seems like in new media we have more, maybe, in-depth analysis and multiple voices, but let's remember, does it reach the wider Colombian society, or maybe should traditional media amplify these initiatives and help uh, or learn from them and create their own? Then how could media potentially improve to help people understand what is happening in the conflict? And I wanted to draw here just four initiatives that are happening in the country right now. So this is, um, this is showing us how media can uh, appeal to multiple voices to show different sectors of the, of the society. And this is a website that is portraying the story of Rosa. And Rosa is a woman that fights for victims' rights and is using podcasts, video, features, articles to shape her story from people that are around here and from her own voice. Also, media could uh, appeal to show civil society initiatives and not just the versions of the actors of the armed conflict. Because this, if media does this, it will reinforce the idea that actually peace won't be signed in the Havana peace talks. It will start, it's, it's also a responsibility of the society. This is an example of El Tiempo Online, where they, are cho where they choose five videos to show uh, initiatives of how theater and art are helping to create peace in different localities. Then also, media could create or support pedagogic initiatives uh, that help to understand concepts that, that are very abstract and that don't mean anything for people that are not specialists, like transitional justice, disarmament, demobilization, and reintegration. What does that mean for the common citizen? This is a, a very good initiative that is aimed to journalists in Colombia and they are providing tools and webinars to explain the meaning of these concepts. But how can we make this wider and more accessible for the rest of the society? And then finally, um, the international society community has very rich experiences and potentially Colombia could draw on the initiatives and on some examples to learn potentially of what 
what can be done and how to explain different contexts. Um, and just this info, I believe, is it could become as a go-to resource where national and local media in Colombia could connect with an international society and actually exchange ideas and knowledge. So in terms of the challenges, we just go very quickly through them of the media as explaining and educating the society. We have first the security. The, there is a still an armed conflict in Colombia. The, the fact that it's a peace agreement, it doesn't mean there is a um, ceasefire. So we need to bear in mind the risks of people's lives. The second challenge is in terms of the independence, particularly independence of information in a country where big and traditional media are owned by families or political and economic groups. A way to mitigate, uh, to overcome this challenge potentially is increasing the reach of new media that is showing new voices. Then the quality of information, we have seen that more initiatives are moving towards digital media where everybody can become a content creator. How can we ensure the quality of the information they are making? Maybe involving communications professionals and journalists in these initiatives to explain the civil society where the peace agreements can help us to mitigate this challenge. And then finally, the public's fatigue. How can we make that people gain interest in this topic if we are showing them the same story every day? And um, here is a very interesting quote, and I believe a way to overcome this challenge is to use uh, creativity, new narratives, but more important, potentially use human voices to portray the story. And as a conclusion, just to summarize um, what the role of media should be in the Colombian peace negotiations, uh, it should be to explain and educate, because like that it can help and empower the public to make uh, better decisions. So when they are asked about if they want to approve or reject the agreements, they can understand what are the implications. Also to use new debates about what do Colombian society believe that it, what it means for them truth, reconciliation, and justice. And ultimately, media can help to understand their past and the present so people can imagine new futures. Thank you. Thank you so much, Eileen. And we, I mean, you, you opened up a lot of very important points. I'm sure we'll come back later on and also at the breakout session. Diana Dacquet is our next speaker. Um, you also have a PowerPoint, right? Yes. Okay, let's we'll see if we can bring it up. <laughs> Diana is the former advisor on the peace process to the Colombian Minister of Interior, but she's currently a student in the master's program at the Colombian School of Governance and entering in the autumn in the DPhil in sociolegal studies, so we get to keep her in the transitional justice group. Thank you, Diana. Well, thank you very much, uh, Lee, and to the OTGR community and to the University of Oxford for giving me the chance of exploring a little bit the relationships between media, academia, and practice. And um, moving forward, Eileen's uh, ex excellent presentation, she draw upon some challenges and opportunities uh, and, and, and different recommendations on the role of media in Colombia. I will also explore some of these questions with an overarching remark, which is that in Colombia, particularly, we have the twofold situation of having a media that is covering conflict and that is covering peace. 
and that draws particular challenges and opportunities. For those of you that are not aware with Colombian conflict, we have been um, having uh, communist guerrillas since uh, almost 60 years ago. And uh, from that period, we also had some paramilitaries uh, who we also had a peace process with, and we are now exploring negotiations with FARC guerrilla and are about to enter with negotiations to ELN guerrilla, which is also a communist guerrilla. So in that big framework, we're both having the condition of the need of covering peace building and covering uh, conflict. So that's why I want to draw upon attention of the particularities of Colombian case and some challenges and opportunities that journalists have in Colombia as uh, having the need to cover conflict and the need of covering peace building. Uh, and this twofold um, uh, condition brings some challenges that I would like to draw upon, quoting some examples. The first challenge of covering conflict is that journalists are also victims. And I want to draw upon three, uh, four different uh, cases that show the complexity of journalists being victim in conflict. The first of all, the, the, this uh, guy that is in, in the picture is Guillermo Cano. He was the director of El Espectador, which is one of the biggest media um, journals, uh, newspapers in Colombia. And he was killed in the 80s by drug traffickers because he had a very strong line in El Espectador against drug trafficking. Uh, later on, El Espectador had a bomb attack, and you can see there the offices of El Espectador, um, again, because they had a strong position against drug trafficking. And this was in the 80s, but more recently, uh, the woman that is in the left is called Jeanette uh, Bedoya. She's a very strong and amazing woman that has been a journalist in conflict in Colombia. And she has been um, kidnapped and uh, violated by the paramilitary groups for her strong positions in conflict. So you can see how difficult it is for journalists to cover war. And you have also Romeo Langlois. He's a, a French uh, journalist who was in Colombia in 2012 covering conflict. And um, he was uh, kidnapped by FARC guerrilla during an attack uh, to the um, Colombian army. So this is a big challenge that Colombia is facing today, how to have an independent media, as Eileen was saying, which is very important, but taking into account that journalists are also victims. Another big challenge is that, as you are aware, the role of media is to tell the facts, to tell the truth. However, sadly, um, in Colombia, we have a huge debate after 60 years of conflict about what the truth is and whose the truth it is. When Romeo Langua was liberated by far guerrillas, uh, one of his first remarks was uh, the need of not only covering the sources of, official, uh, of the official army or the institutions for taking uh, account of the conflict. He also said that it was very important to engage with FARC, with paramilitaries, to have an overall uh, threat of the conflict. 
And in response to his remarks, Uribe, the former president of Colombia, was very critical, and he said that Romeo Languas was being uh, somehow um, an, an, a friend of the FARC guerrillas. So you can see there that the truth is very disputed in Colombia, and because of that, we have also a really strong challenge on, on who the truth it is. So um, that's another uh, big remark on covering conflict. Another important remark is that um, in Colombia, we have so many things happening in old country. It's a very big country with more than 40 people of population. So there are lots of things happening, not only about peace, but about economy, about uh, uh, ecology, about political news. So there's always a need of the latest news. And even this is a, um, a, a funny fact, but even um, some years ago, uh, one of the leaders of, of the guerrilla group of FARC, which is Alfonso Cano, you can see him in the picture that is over there, he um, was uh, attacked by the Colombian army. And one newspaper, which is now an alternative news uh, media, very good one, but in that time they made a mistake, which was because of the quest of the latest truth, they said that Alfonso Cano was, um, uh, had died in the attack when he hadn't. So you can see there how complex it is, this race for the, having always the latest news which also affects the quality of information and the profound of the analysis. You can see in the other picture uh, one of the previous failed attempts of peace in Colombia, which was uh, between the presidency of Andrés Pastrana, which was the president before Álvaro Uribe. And this is a very symbolic act. He, he was uh, signed by the FARC um, to the territory where the peace conversations were taking place, but the FARC, the FARC commandant never came. So uh, it's very symbolic. It was uh, an opportunity for the media, not just to cover the act, but also to go deeper, maybe put some pressure to save the process. But because of all these quests, and well, also lots of things uh, um, surrounding the process, um, you can see always uh, the how, how challenging it is to cover deeply uh, the conflict when there is this race for information. However, there are good news. There are also opportunities of covering the Colombian armed conflict. And I want to uh, outline three opportunities. The first one is to be a voice against impunity. After 60 years of war, you can imagine that there are lots of crimes that have been committed. Actually, right now, the official um, accounts of victims said that there are 7 million victims in Colombia, which is a lot. Uh, and one thing that media can do especially well is to draw attention on those cases of impunity. And even though it has passed 20 years, call the attention that there are no sentence on the, on the specific cases and that there are some, still some people that haven't been tried. Um, likewise, um, they are a voice against oblivion, which is also very important given the fact that journalists are also victims. Um, 
the picture that you see there is a conference called a journalist uh, damage memory and reparation which was very symbolic because now journalists are recognized as a collective group of victims in Colombia and the unity of victims are doing high very important efforts to to repair that damage not only in a material way but also in a symbolic way and one way of doing that it's raising the voice of the issue and doing these kinds of conversations to draw attention of uh, the fact that we cannot forget about the different atrocities that have been committed by years and years and years of conflict. The last opportunity is that they are also a voice for truth. And even though, as I said before, a huge challenge is the attribution of truth and the dimension and profundity of it, it's also an opportunity. Uh, uh, the, um, I like very much this um, photo that you see there. It says that you cannot heal truth by killing journalists. And this is highly important, uh, taking into account that that has been kind of the, um, the fact in Colombia. So it's very important to take into account that this is an opportunity to give voice of truth. And um, there's, I also want to highlight very briefly the um, role of media as, as uh, in, the, in their coverage of peace building and also three challenges and three opportunities. And in terms of challenges, as Eileen was saying, communicating peace uh, building is very technical in Colombia. You can see this is the first page of the, of the um, document of the commission, Historic Commission of Conflict in Colombia, which um, has 809 pages. <laughs> uh, this is supposed to give a general account of the conflict, and it's just an initial effort. And Communicating that to the public, it's just an exhausting effort, and we need a lots of lots of imagination for from journalists to try to communicate that to the public. Uh, you can also imagine that that is also the case for legal information uh, concepts that, like transitional justice, are just too technical to uh, to to communicate. Also. Uh, we have a highly polarized society right now, and polarization self. So a really important challenge is for the for media to try to not be part of that polarization, and even with the language, try to be a little bit softer. And there is also giving, taking into account that the conversations are confidential. There is a lot of prudency that must be maintained, and that is a huge challenge for journalists. But there are also some opportunities, as I was saying. The first one is that this is an opportunity to have a more informed uh, public opinion. As Eileen was saying, uh, there is uh, the initiative of how to cover the peace process, which is very important. They have been um, doing workshops with journalists at the local level in Colombia to make them understand all the technicalities behind the peace process. And there's also uh, an independent the journal of La Silla Vacía, which is called the um, Peace, um, the, the Chair of Peace, you can tra translate it like that, 
but it's like a way to translating all the technical discussions in a more digestible language. Uh, media has also the opportunity of highlighting victims and society's concerns, which is very important because there are lots of things that need to be discussed right now, and media is the mean to do so. And lastly, it's an opportunity to boost democracy. Um, Colombia is facing a huge challenge uh, trying to engage citizen participation in peace process. And Colombia is actually pioneer in uh, take building initiatives uh, to engage citizens to actually construct peace uh, building policies. And the first uh, way to do so is to engage public participation and who talks to the citizens? The media. So it's very important that the media engage in these efforts. Um, this is an overview. Uh, you can imagine that there are lots of challenges, lots of opportunities. I just wanted to highlight you some of them so we can have um, some remarks for our discussion in the workshop. Um, I'll be happy to answer some of your questions later on, but I will just like to outline to finish three remarks. The first one is that peace building from the bottom up uh, uh, needs journalism from the bottom up. Um, which is very important, as, as Aline was saying, right now in Colombia we have lots of top-down uh, media and what is trying to happen right now in Colombia with the new initiatives is to create a journalism from the bottom up and that's why there have been so much engagement with journalists in the, in the regions. Likewise, journalism for democracy needs a strong partnership between academia media and practice and this is how uh, uh, where we all the people sitting here need to engage and work hard to understand our language we are which are sometimes different and also understand our different roles and ways of thinking and engaging with the public and lastly uh, i would like to finish with this quote that i found very interesting from maria jimena usan which is a journalist in colombia it's from um, a column published yesterday. Moments of definite crisis need political imagination. And that's the call for media today, to be imaginative enough to boost and encourage citizen participation so we can create a better future. Thank you very much. Both are very punctual. Thank you also for that. <laughs> and uh, we'll see if Roddy no can also be <laughs> a little PowerPoint. So, okay. so we, we yes, can sit here. You can sit there. Or you can stand, if you, whichever you prefer. Um, our, our last speaker on the panel is Roddy Brett, who is a lecturer in international relations at the University of St. Andrews. But he's been visiting in the Latin American Center at the University of Oxford for the year. And we've enjoyed having his participation throughout. Um, he's also an advisor to the Institute of Humanitarian Studies of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs uh, in Bogota, Colombia. Mm. Okay. Thanks very much, Lee. Thanks for hosting me. And, of course, thanks to OTJI for this great um, invitation. Two really tough acts to follow, actually, um, and, and no PowerPoint, so you're going to have to look at your, each other, I suspect. <laughs> Um, so what I want to do is, is this is really not my field of, of um, research, so it's a way out of my comfort zone, but what I want to do is to talk a little bit about the 
relationship between the media and victims in a context of transitional justice or peace building or post-conflict reconstruction. Um, essentially, this is based, I had the privilege recently of, of leading a UN investigation into the role of victims in the peace building and peace process in Colombia at the moment. We didn't mention this already, but in June 2014, so a year ago more or less, the parties to the negotiation and to the conflict, of course, ended up as a result of a really long process that we can talk about if we want to in the Q&A, inviting victims, direct victims of Colombia's armed conflict to participate in the negotiating table. Okay, so basically five delegations were invited uh, of 12 people each, so you have 60 individuals, obviously of a universe of around 7 million victims. So it ain't representative, but um, it was supposed to at least give a taste to the parties to the conflict. They were very carefully chosen, and again, we can go into that if we're interested in the Q&A. Um, so I'm basically leading the, the research for, uh, investigation into whether or not this made any difference whatsoever to the peace process, okay? And of course, in this regard, what is really interesting are the perspectives of those victims that took part in the delegations in Havana, the peace process is in Havana, it's not in Colombia, their perspectives with regards to the media and what the media did or didn't contribute to the peace-building process and to their participation. Um, so I guess I want just to start with an obvious but a, but a sort of general point. Part of the workshop is to look at the degree to which the media has the power to create collective narratives um, around the conflict and that this can either enhance or impede the peace process. It can build consensus or it can polarise debate, right? Um, which is what our two speakers looked very interestingly at. But obviously, and I want to make this point, the media in itself will ultimately reflect the deeper structural context in which it's located or situated, the social, political and economic formations within a society. In the case of, of Latin America, and this was alluded to by Eileen, and specifically in the case of Colombia, we have a very restricted ownership of the media, so this monopoly is crucial, self leading to self-censorship, to market-driven censorship, or direct censorship. Um, at the same time, you have a very limited access for vulnerable or oppositional groups to the mainstream media, okay, which is why very often you have an interesting sort of alternative set of medias uh, developing. And I think that actually reflects the closure of the political system to such groups. So it's related directly, and the clo closure of the political system to vulnerable or oppositional groups has ultimately been a motive for conflict in itself, right? So that's something just to get out of the way in the first place. As both of our speakers alluded to, Colombia and Latin America more generally, we see journalists and freedom of speech again generally as a victim of the armed conflict and of authoritarian regimes. In Colombia, for example, between 1977 and 2015, according to the Foundation for the Freedom of the Press, we have 143 journalists that were killed um, by different armed groups. But that's, in a sense, augmented by the fact you have thousands upon thousands of death threats, kidnappings, intimidations of journalists. And you look exactly, the, the question of Jeanette Bedoya, very important, and the bombing of the Espectador newspaper in 1989. So I think at the same time, the mainstream media, as you both alluded to also, has played a key role in building consensus regarding which violent actors are socially acceptable 
and therefore to a certain degree should be subject to transitional justice mechanisms, and which episodes of violence are worthy of media coverage and which should be silenced. And I'll, I'll go into this in a bit more detail in a moment. There's a really interesting interview that was carried out by Claudia Gurisati, who I think is the director of Edicieni, or Caracol Edicieni, which is one of the mainstream, big mainstream um, media outlets. She interviewed uh, Carlos Castaño, who was one of the founders of the paramilitaries. And to say it was uncritical would be a massive understatement. I mean, it was orgasmic, actually. Watching her speak to Carlos Castaño, as my wife said to me last night. So, um, so the, the question of bias is massive, obviously, in Colombia. So I guess from here, the first point I want to make is whilst we can't go as far as saying that the media is a direct perpetrator in the armed conflict, obviously, it's clearly played a role in the armed conflict. And as Aida Abello, who was one of the victims who went to the delegations to the peace process in Cuba, said to me recently, she was the president or is the president of a, of a political party called the Patriotic Union, which re-emerged after its uh, political genocide against it in the 1980s and 1990s. Aida said to me the following, the media is a key actor in the conflict and should participate in any transitional justice mechanisms that are elaborated, both as victim and as perpetrator, for example, truth commissions. The wickedness, as she calls it, with which large media outlets such as Caracol and RCN have handled the conflict is grave. I listened to war reporters whose news editors told them they had to change their story because of its focus on particular victims. Many refused and were fired. At that time, mainstream media outlets had military officials who would say which news could be published and which could not. Okay, so that's pretty, pretty interesting, I think. So the second point, then, related to that I want to make is this question of access to the media. Um, a senior UN official that I spoke to during this uh, research project said to me that um, he believes that not all Columbia, Colombian media, as he puts it, is run by a corrupt oligarchy. Um, and he says really that what you do see, and I think you made this point very well, Eileen, is that there is quite a diversity in the media. Um, not all of it is incredibly um, biased, as it is, for example, in the case of Guatemala or El Salvador. Um, but what he did say, and I think this is important, is that some people, and in this particular case victims, have better access to the media than others. And he would say the following, and I'm citing him, it's not the displaced people in Tumaco, it's not the indigenous in Cauca who have the best access to the media. It is, and with all due respect, the victims from other social strata that do have access to the media. So there's a relationship, in a sense, between elite families, the, the far right, and their potential access to the media, and those who are in the vulnerable oppositional groups that don't have that access. So therefore, many stories are covered in Aida Bello, talked about this, the massacres, for example, of the Union Patriotica of our political party weren't covered in the media in the 1980s and the 1990s, completely silenced. So this then, in that regard, I think, leads to the next reflection, which is the role on the role of alternative media, including social media in building peace, and particularly in the current peace process. Colombia, as Eileen mentioned, has a series of really interesting semi-autonomous, independent websites uh, and news outlets that have really done very interesting work on peace building, on, on transitional justice. Verdad Abierta, Las Dos Orillas, which is a new um, organization recently, Razón Pública, La Silla Vacía. They're worth looking at. I think they're very good. 
These, are, these outlets have been critical very often and actually seek to bring in the voice of victims and alternative narratives regarding the conflict into the, into the, um, into the broader context, in particular concerning the role and impact of paramilitaries. Okay, so as you were saying, you know, the, the soldiers are heroic, the killing of them by the military um, is also, but when you look at the question of paramilitary killings, that's very often excluded. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means that we need to start thinking about a point that Diana raised, which is what's going on in the regions of Colombia. In the peace process at the moment, there's a crucial focus, allegedly, on the importance of the regions. It's a very big country. It's a very regionalized country. And what Sergio Jaramillo, who's the peace commissioner who was here in Oxford a month or so ago, the UN and other actors have said, is that peace can only be built from the regions. That's where you start building a meaningful peace. Um, so I want to focus on that for the rest of the talk, and that and alternative media. So I want to refer to the work of an organization called the Collective of Journalists from Montes de Maria, which is a zone in the, in the uh, Atlantic coast of Colombia. So this group was founded in the 1990s and has played a crucial role in trying to maintain cohesion in conflict-torn countries and latterly to kickstart reconciliation in um, these local communities. So I interviewed one of their members called Soraya Baiguelo, and she said to me the following, that basically at the height of guerrilla and paramilitary violence in the 90s and early 2000s, it had been impossible to do any sort of meaningful media work, right? So they were forced underground, and they could do no political analysis, no discussions of, of the situation of the armed conflict, and focused on very kind of day-to-day -day issues. Um, but slowly they decided they wouldn't be silenced, and they really moved towards engaging with victims' issues. And they'd started to do a really interesting strategy, which was basically um, start to show films in local, com in local communities, in the central plaza, of local communities. At the, at the beginning, they weren't political films at all. They were, there was one central station, which is a Brazilian film, which is very interesting. And what they started to do was just to get people to come and watch the movies. Okay? The, at the end of the first movie, everyone just went home immediately. Um, there was no discussion. The second movie, and they would do it more or less immediately after bombing attacks or killings had taken place in the communities. Right? Um, bit by bit, people would hang around a bit. Afterwards, they'd take a coffee, they'd start talking about the film, and so they then started to show more political films, and it begins to develop. And what she says is that the role of the media, alternative local-level media in this context, is to build citizenship, is to start reflecting upon uh, the context in which they're living. So the final point, then, I think, to make um, is really about the importance of social media. And I would say the following, and it's an obvious point, but it's worth making, um, Social media isn't just inherently democratic just because anybody can f fire a tweet off from anywhere. Okay? The, the really important example I want to focus on, one of the victims is called Angela Maria Giraldo. She went in the first delegation to Havana um, last year. She was the sister of someone who had been kidnapped by the FARC and was subsequently executed by the FARC in 2007. Spent a lot of time with Angela, and we were talking a lot about this issue. And she said to me that when she'd come back from Cuba... Um, she was faced immediately on Twitter, of all places, by a barrage of disinformation, of abuse, um, of threats. And the really sort of most important one to, to mention is that a congressional deputy 
of uh, Uribe's party, Central Democratico, Democratic Center, um, essentially Maria Fernanda Carba, uh, Cabral had posted a photo of Angela um, shaking hands with somebody in Havana, right? And the, it said underneath it, the line it said was, uh, was the following. The post read, this victim, in inverted commas, is very happy greeting the FARC. Does she have Stockholm Syndrome? Okay. Now, obviously for Angela, this was really serious and very, very disturbing and precipitated all sorts of other threats and discussions. Um, ironically, the person wasn't even a member of the FARC. He was from the government delegation. Um, but I think what this demonstrates is that social media in the context of Colombia's current peace process has also been used to politicize and to re-victimize the victims. And that's taken place very often. I, I was just writing up the report yesterday. 40% of the victims that went to Havana and came back have received either death threats or intimidations, etc. So, um, to end then, I guess, social media and more generally the media can play both a negative and a positive role within the framework of transitional justice and post-conflict reconstruction. And in this context, the Colombian peace process, at the same time, media has often acted as a terrain of contestation between spoiling actors and those that support the peace process. Right? The media has represented, I think, a thermometer for Colombia's peace process, but at the same time, um, it's represented a thermometer for, taste, for testing the nature and stability of what could be Colombia's post-conflict scenario. So here I'll come back to my first point in order to end. I think given the significance, and this was likely something that will come up during the next couple of days, given the significance of the media as an actor in these contexts, I'd come back to Aida Abeo's words, which is it's crucial that they're taken into account in any transitional justice mechanisms, right? Be, be they be truth commissions uh, or otherwise. So, and it's crucial that the media is contemplated within these mechanisms as a victim, as an indirect perpetrator, and as a spoiler. Okay? I'll finish there. Thank you. 